Hello and welcome back to the Gentleman's Journal podcast, our fortnightly interview series all about success, modern business and the lives of entrepreneurs. I'm Joe Bulmore, the editor of Gentleman's Journal, and I'm joined today by Federico Marchetti, the founder and chairman of Uxnetta Porta. Federico grew up in Ravenna, an ancient town in northern Italy, which is home, in fact, to some of the most historically significant mosaics in the world. And he describes his career like a giant mosaic, a long process of placing building blocks on top of building blocks, slowly working towards a grand design. Federico started out working in finance, in fact, before hitting upon the idea of a luxury e-commerce site back in 1999 at the height of the dot-com boom. Most people thought he was crazy for attempting to merge these two disparate worlds, but after cold-calling Italy's most famous venture capitalist, Federico quickly managed to get the idea off the ground, and the rest, as they say, is history. Today, Uxnetta Porta is one of the biggest e-commerce players in the world, with customers in over 180 countries. In a fascinating episode, Federico and I talk about how Apple took some of its inspiration from Italian typewriters, why none of us will be using mobile phones in five years' time, and how the next Coco Chanel won't be a designer, but a programmer. Enjoy! But before we begin, I'd love to tell you about the Clubhouse, a new kind of private members club brought to you by Gentleman's Journal. Clubhouse members get two bumper issues of Gentleman's Journal magazine delivered straight to their door, full of all those invaluable insights from the worlds of entrepreneurship, style, politics and culture that you'd expect, as well as exclusive deals with a range of partner brands, restaurants and hotels. Not to mention some lovely invitations to some very exciting events across the year. In fact, our podcast listeners, which is you... Now get 20% off a Clubhouse annual membership, meaning you'll get the full Gentleman's Journal experience for just under £48 a year, which sounds a bit like a bargain to me. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. That's P-O-D-20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. Right, on with the podcast. Federico, thanks so much for joining us on the Gentleman's Journal podcast. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very happy, very honoured. It's lovely to have you. I'm sitting here, even though it's mid-June, in a grey, dismal London weather. But are you, where are you? You're in Lake Como. Uh, no, currently I'm in Milan. Okay, I'm not so jealous then. I was going to say, if you were sitting by a beautiful lake, I'm no, not sure no, I can no, continue. No, 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 no. I'm still in the office and uh, with the outside, I think it's around 35 degrees. So it's it's quite it's quite hot. <laughs> and did you watch the football yesterday? Absolutely, absolutely. With my daughter and with um, a schoolmate of my daughter that goes to school with my daughter. Yeah. So the three of us, and it was a lot of fun. <laughs> I can imagine. I'm very happy also because my my shareholder is Swiss. Oh wow. <laughs> <laughs> Three nil, yeah, that'll show them. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine it, it, Milan goes kind of crazy when there's an Italian victory on the cards. It Not crazy, it's, it goes silent. So okay. <laughs> it's the only time when uh, Italians uh, they don't speak. Too tense. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, basically, you can go around in the city. Actually, it's the best time uh, if you. I mean, if you are not fond of soccer. During that 90 minutes, if you go around the city, it's empty, completely empty. Wow. And uh, so it's kind of, uh, it's kind of, it looks like you're in a movie. 
where, ghost town. yeah, ghost town. It's pretty, it's pretty interesting, actually. Yeah, amazing. So talking about Italy, you uh, grew up in Ravenna in Italy. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Ravenna is a city town in the northeast coast uh, by the sea, uh, below Venice, close to Bologna. What was that like? I imagine as pretty as it is, it's not necessarily a, a fashion capital of the world. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 but but it's it's around it's, it's surrounded by beauty. Yeah, and maybe like the I mean uh, thousands of years ago, it was also the capital of the Roman Empire. Wow! But, um, and it was uh, when um, Byzantium, so like it's. Uh, with the, with the Constantinople and Turkey mm-hmm. and uh, and so like all the mosaics, the most important mosaics of the world are in Ravenna. And wow. so if you go around in Ravenna, it's really, really, really pretty city, and it's full of tourists, especially this year because it's the 700th uh, anniversary of Dante's Dante Alighieri, so the Divine Comedy, and the tomb of Dante, the tomb of Dante is uh, in Ravenna. Amazing. So I was uh, I was uh, influenced I think by the aesthetics of Ravenna, uh, the mosaic. In the end, the project that I've done, uh, I, I sometimes I I felt it as a mosaic, no, putting together piece by piece, brick after brick, building uh, like this uh, big conglomerate called Ux Netaporte from scratch. I felt sometimes that I was basically building a very artsy mosaic. That's beautiful. So as you say, you're now obviously one of the most influential certainly behind the scenes people in modern fashion but were you very fashionable growing up were you a very stylish young man um i mean i'm coming from a family with a normal family so mm. my father was a warehouse manager at fiat my mom was a working in telecom italia in a kind of a call center so so i couldn't afford to be hyper-fashionable, but um, in uh, in my own way, I tried always to be different. And so I used fashion to differentiate myself. So rather than uh, using fashion as a uniform, I thought that fashion was a good way to be different. And so, for example, with uh, the little money that I had, so I was going to this vintage shop um, close to Ravenna in a small town called Lugo. And I was buying these American uh, hoodies because I was so fond of hoodies also at the time. Now it's Brunello Cucinelli <laughs> making my own hoodies uh, as a, like because he's a friend. <laughs> at that time, uh, it was like American vintage um, hoodies that I was buying from this vintage place. And uh, and definitely was a one-of-a-kind piece. And and I because I, so I, I was different from all my friends because I, did, I was not wearing the same thing. And then you became an investment banker in your 20s, is that right? You moved into finance? Uh, yeah, but not for passion. I did it for learning uh, and I would do it again because it was a great learning there. I was not only for the, the quality of the people, but also the time that I spent in the office because I was working for three years in a row, I was working around 90, 90 hours per week. Wow. And um, it's very, it was very intense, it was very successful, the investment bank where I was working at that time. And, um, and I've learned so much, so much uh, in terms of methodology, uh, work ethics, how to be a perfectionist, 
I've learned how to make deals, how to take a company public, how to do mergers. So in the end, uh, I've done so many deals in the last 20 years. If you think that uh, I've done a startup, then uh, an IPO in 2009, then a merger with Netaporte, then a sale to Richmond in 2018, then three uh, joint ventures, one uh, with Caring, one with uh, Alibaba and one with uh, the most important entrepreneur in the Middle East, which is uh, Mr. Alabar of the Dubai Mall. So in the end, uh, these are three years working 90 hours per, per day at, um, at investment banking. They were absolutely very, very important to, to my career. But as you say, it wasn't necessarily a passion for you. Did you get to the feeling after a few years that you'd have to make a, a leap into something new, into something more entrepreneurial. To have become an entrepreneur and to have my own thing, my own project to build, as I said before, as a mosaic, piece after piece, uh, uh, has always been my dream since I was a teenager. Um, and I, I, I'm not an inventor, uh, so I'm not an engineer, uh, but I'm an entrepreneur in the sense that uh, I tend to look at things with my eyes in a different way. So I try to, to look at the same thing, but uh, with the twist. Let's put it, mm. how can I do this, but in a different way? And, um, and all the ideas that I came up with uh, when I was a teenager, they were not particularly uh, interesting, let's put it this way. So um, every month I was coming up with, okay, why don't, don't I do this? Why don't I? Sometimes they were very, very cool also, because uh, I remember that in 91, uh, when I was at university, I got the, the, the first uh, phone, mobile phone. Wow. And um, because I was passionate about technology and about um, the things and communication and so on. And um, I thought at that time that um, it was good to to put a camera in that big phone. I mean, yeah. we are very young, but uh, in 91, the phone, the mobile phone was uh, very, very, very big. And uh, if, you look, if you watch, I don't know, maybe, maybe American Gigolo, the movie, you will realize that it was in a little um, luggage and, uh, and you could bring it around. So it was so big that I said, okay, why don't we bring also the camera inside? So we have only one device with, that you can make your calls and you can also make your pictures. Wow. And it was a good idea because uh, 20 years later, basically now the phones are more cameras than phones. Um, <laughs> but, um, but I was not an engineer. I could no. prototype. And so I said, uh, you know what? Somebody else will probably invent this. When finally um, coming back from my MBA at Columbia University, because uh, after three years uh, investment banking, uh, I think I had enough. So I decided to, 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 to go to New York and to enjoy New York and to live in America because it was been, it's always been my dream uh, not to, to, to be in New York. And um, when I came back from New York, I came up with the idea of books. It was 1999. Uh, it was October 1999 when I started drafting my business plan. Was there a single conversation or a, a kind of spark that, that made you think we could do this or this is a good idea? More than a single conversation, uh, it was a, a combination of um, 
certain connecting the dots mm. this way because uh, at the time 1998 99 when i was in new york it was the boom of the internet mm. and uh, i immediately realized and actually i i started using the internet in 94 when i was uh, an intern in investment banking and i i i used the, to to search for information in order to work rather than 90 hours per week to work 88 hours per week because i was more efficient thanks to the internet yeah but in 98 99 in new york it was like you know what okay so in fact i i think i've learned more from the city than from the school i cannot I mean, I'm not sure that if Colombia people would be happy to hear that, but but also them, I, I would say they were promoting the quintessential New York experience, which yeah. is absolutely true. And so internet, I, I immediately realized that it was a big revolution and it was going to be huge. And then as an Italian, going back to Italy, uh, I, I tried to, to leverage on uh, our competitive advantages. You know, so the famous three Fs, which is food. I'm sorry to say, but Italian food is, is a bit better <laughs> than British. I agree. And, and my wife is British. So uh, <laughs> um, uh, furniture, because also like uh, Milan is the capital of design, home design and so on, and fashion. And so at that point, Probably I could add also another F, which is Ferrari, because it's, an, it's another excellence in Italy. And I was there uh, last Sunday in Maranello mm. for the launch of the fashion collection of Ferrari. So I put together internet and fashion. Uh, I thought that these two worlds in 99, they were completely distant. They were not talking to each other because fashion was looking at technology as like geeks and something not interesting and marginal. The technology people were looking at fashion like fashionista and glamorous, but uh, let's say superficial. And so they were completely distant. But I thought that one day <clears throat> the two worlds were going to converge. And, uh, and that's how I started. That's all very simply. What was the kind of reaction like when you told people that this was your idea? Did they think this was crazy or too early or did they just tell you it wouldn't work? I was so convinced that. Uh, to be frank, I was not listening too much mm. to other comments. And because also um, I, I, I drafted the business plan in the autumn of 99. I looked uh, for investments because I didn't have any money. Um, in uh, starting from January 2000, I signed the deal with the first venture capitalist uh, in March 2000. Mm. And uh, in April, there was uh, the beginning of the end of the internet era because it was uh, the, the burst of the bubble economy. So the timing was perfect because probably if I had started uh, three months later, we wouldn't be here talking about uh, my, yeah. my adventure. Uh, and also after that, after April 2000, all the media, all the people, everybody, was thinking that e-commerce was dead. So if I was listen, listening to them, again, probably I wouldn't be here. And imagine that when I opened Ux.com, the first um, virtual doors on June 21st, so actually on Monday is our 21st anniversary. Wow. Um, on June 21st, 2000, there was a journalist uh, from Netherlands that called me 
and said, um, so the first line was, are you crazy? So that was the first line, the, 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 the debut online of my company. And um, so thank goodness I didn't listen to anybody. What was what was the kind of culture like around internet startups at, at that real turning point? It seems like up to then it had been a crazy wild west where people were throwing money at things they didn't understand and you could raise millions of pounds with a crazy website that did nothing. What was it? What was it like being in the middle of it? Yeah, it was. Uh, it's exactly as you said, um, but it was uh, refreshing. Yeah, because uh, at that time, a young, ambitious, um, creative uh, people, they could access uh, to big capital. Yeah, which I think is it's never happened now because usually the banks they give money to the rich people and not to the poor people. And uh, so it was like kind of a super democratic uh, yeah. uh, era of uh, access to capital. And, uh, and it was quite, there was quite of a, an anarchy. Yeah, let's put it in this way. You know? So also like um, in, in my office, I remember that the, 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 the people that I put together at the beginning, there was a philosopher, there was a, the girlfriend of uh, the president of Magnum Photo to take pictures. There was a, a girl with the blue hair in the warehouse. There was a, the warehouse manager. He had like very, very long hair, like until the, almost, the, almost the knees. So it was like a kind of an atmosphere of uh, anarchy, but creativity. Mm. Um, uh, you know, like later in my career around, uh, I don't remember, but in 2008 or 2000, something like this, I met uh, and I became friend with Malcolm McLaren, mm. uh, you know, the, 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 the inventor of the sex, the empresario of the Sex Pistols and yeah. the inventor of the punk together with Vivian Westwood. And, and uh, I probably we became friends uh, because we both shared this uh, kind of um, love for disruption and uh, anarchy and so on. And then um, for my birthday, I still remember that he gave me a poster signed uh, because uh, at a certain time he ran for the mayor of London. Can you believe it? Oh, wow. <laughs> Malcolm McLaren running for mayor of London. <laughs> and the poster that he, he, he put together for the campaign was, uh, is, the, is the biggest job in London. Don't give it to a politician. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he might be right, to be fair. <laughs> so do you still have a bit of anarchy in your office now? Do you still try and keep that kind of sense of freedom and I, I've, I've tried hard in the last 21 years i've tried hard very hard because i think it's important for creativity and innovation especially for innovation yeah. because uh, if you wanted to be innovative in a way you you need to break rules because mm. if you just follow rules uh, then it's very difficult to be innovative um so in my own way i've tried by pushing people and working not only with the, the first reports, but I've, I've been working with probably 100 people in my company. So yeah. I don't have like the hierarchical lines of reports that I am I'm speaking only with them and so on. So I've been, uh, let's say, trying to push boundaries at every level of the company and also try to bring someone from one division to another, from one function to another, 
from one country to another, from one company to another, mm. which, which has been not easy because people, they don't love change by humans. They don't love change no. by definition. So you need to push them. Um, and, but now, you know, like when the company gets big and bigger and bigger, uh, over 2 billion and so on, uh, it's normal also that uh, it becomes a little bit more corporate. And it's kind of a natural evolution. So I think the, the trick for the future will be to maintain this uh, innovative spirit together with, uh, let's say, a very solid uh, corporate culture because uh, it's a big company. So let's go back to 2000 for a sec. So you're raising money. Is it true that you cold called one of the biggest, I mean, the biggest venture capitalist in Italy, El Serino Piol? Am I saying that right? Is that his name? Yeah, you're saying right. <laughs> Bravo. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah, I mean, you need to, to, to know that in Italy, in Milan, uh, venture capitalism was almost non-existent. So it was not at the Silicon Valley, it was not London. Mm. It was uh, basically a couple of people. Uh, and basically the only real venture capital was El Serino Piola. El Serino Piola is a, a, a now a 90-year-old man that I still go and visit once every two, three, four months. And last time I went with my daughter because I was speaking about him and so she was very curious. So I brought my daughter to El Serino because I'm obviously I'm super thankful to him because mm. uh, he was the, the, the first one to believe and to trust me. And, um, and he was uh, working previously at Olivetti. So he did the deal with Apple, uh, with Steve Jobs, uh, invest because Olivetti was, uh, I would say, the first, uh, the first example of uh, uh, combining in, with harmony form and function, aesthetics yeah. with functionality. So the typewriters, they were designed by amazing architects and they were amazingly beautiful. Yeah, of course. And so Mr. Jobs, when he came to Italy at Olivetti, because they invested in Apple, he didn't want to meet uh, with El Serino or the CEO of, of Olivetti. He wanted to meet with um, Mr. Bellini, who was the architect. And, uh, and, um, and uh, my assumption uh, has been that uh, Mr. Jobs got the inspiration of Apple, so beautiful design product, technology products, but beautiful, from Olivetti. So last Sunday, when I was having dinner at Ferrari Maranello, I sat uh, with uh, Johnny Ive. Oh, wow. And uh, so there was uh, Mark Newson, Johnny Ive, myself, uh, Charles Leclerc, and so on. And, um, and I had the pleasure to sit with Johnny Ive, that for me, he was a kind of a, he is a kind of a hero. And right. I asked this question, I asked the question, Johnny, is my assumption right that uh, your friend, Steve, because they were very, very close friends, uh, got some inspiration from Olivetti? And I got the confirmation. Wow. So, so I can say a little bit that probably 1% of Apple is Italian. <laughs> That's incredible. So, so then you met El Serino. What did he think of you? Is it true you cold called him out of the blue? Yeah, no, it's true. It's true. Absolutely true. At the time, there were yellow pages. So, uh, mm. how to get in touch with people, you had, you had to go through yellow pages. I don't know okay. in London, 
but in Italy you had to go through yellow pages. And uh, so I found I found his name uh, because he was in the press uh, as a, like a, the investor of a very successful company in Italy. So I knew that he was he was the guy for me. Mm. So I, I find the, the telephone number, I called, I met um, first uh, one of his collaborators and then himself. And uh, in um, less than uh, three weeks, because it was mid-February, end of February, so I signed the deal on the 21st of March 2000. So in, yeah, in three, four weeks, uh, we signed the deal. So very, very, very fast. Wow. And um, probably one of the things that... Um, persuaded him to invest in my company, in my idea, and in myself, was the fact that um, I didn't have uh, uh, two feet in two shoes. So I, I didn't keep my, my job and uh, during the night or during the weekend yeah. or during, uh, let's say, spare time, I was going around investors. So I had quit completely my job uh, for Christmas 99 so wow. I was jobless, had a huge debt because the company also paid for my scholarship at Columbia University. So I had to pay back the debt. So I was oh, wow. not starting from zero. I was starting from minus zero. And, um, and so probably he, he thought this guy either is crazy, like the journalist said <laughs> months later, <laughs> or he believes so much in his idea that he's going to make it work. And, and that's exactly what, what happened. So how did you go about convincing these very traditional fashion houses who, as you say, they view technology and the internet as a kind of geeky subculture? How did you convince them to partner up with you, especially as you're a young man who hasn't really got a background in fashion? Uh, that was probably the most difficult part. Yeah. Um, especially at the beginning. Um, so... In the end, uh, the, the answer to your question is uh, uh, also in the fashion industry, there are innovators and there are followers. Mm. And so I, I tried to, to pick the innovators and uh, I had this, uh, such a, a big dream and um, I was dreaming about this company and I was so convinced that it was going to happen and it was going to work in the future that uh, fashion was going to be very digital that um, I made these innovators in the fashion industry dreaming with me. Simple as that. So I, I was really convinced that they got convinced. And also I, for them, it was also a test at the beginning. So they were not losing so much in the end because they thought that the internet was marginal, not important. And so the, one of the first was Mr. Armani. And then there was... a. Others like Mr. Rosso, the, like Only the Brave, and so on. So, and, and then uh, imagine 20 years later, all the CEOs of the fashion brands, all the owners of the fashion brands, including the big groups, the big French groups, and so on, they all have uh, digital as a top priority of their agenda. And now, like, uh, we have so many brands knocking at our doors uh, of Neta Porte, Mr. Porte, but also Yux. Um, because uh, because uh, it's important for them to be there because yeah. kind of um, uh, I'm not saying status but uh, it's uh, it's important to be within uh, uh, embraced by the leader because we, we are the leader in the luxury online fashion industry. So the dynamic is switched now. You're the ones making the calls in a way. 
You're not the outsiders. There are still some brands that, uh, I mean, for example, a few months ago, a year ago, I've been trying so hard to get a small, very small brand, but a prestigious one called Marinella, which is like a Napolitan tie. Maker. Yeah, yeah. Award by the all the American presidents, so which is I think it's a great craftsmanship, and um, and I've been trying for twenty years to persuade them to go online, and then um, finally I found the way with the young Marinella guy, uh, not uh, his father, but through the, the let's say the new generation of Marinella, I struck a deal, and I said, okay, so if I manage to get Hermes. Will you come on board? Will you come online? And he thought that uh, it was almost impossible for me to get Hermes online because, you know, like they hyper selective and they just selling the Hermes boutique. But then I managed to get the Hermes watches. And so, so they had no choice to go online with Mr. Porto. So w- let's go back to the name for a second because it is an unusual name, Ukes. Were there many other names in the mix? And, and why did you settle on that one in the end? It's a name. Uh, I mean, I'm the, the father of this of this name, so I, for sure I love it. Yeah. But I have to say that after 21 years, uh, it, it's still so good for me. So it doesn't make me tired of it. Yeah. With names, it's not an easy thing. Sometimes you find that you find a fantastic name, but then after two years, you say, "Oh my God, no, it's, it's not anymore contemporary." It's not. So Yuks. It came from my imagination, and it was uh, autumn '99. I was typing the letters of a dot com for my company that uh, needed to be available because I didn't have the money to buy a domain name from somebody else. So I had to find one that was available for I don't know for thirty dollars. I don't remember register.com how much it cost, but something like this. And the, the names can, which I mean, first of all, I wanted to be to, to come up with a name that was global and not only Italian, because uh, my project was uh, from the very, very beginning, from day one, I was a European. And I knew that I wanted to go to America, I wanted to go to China, to Japan, and so on. So I didn't want to have just an Italian name, because in terms of the service, I wanted everybody, every culture to appreciate and, and, and think that we were local. Uh, and then uh, I came up with the, 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 the letters uh, Y, O, O, X, uh, because the Y and X are the chromosomes of uh, men and women, which is also part of our philosophy in terms of uh, women in tech and so on. So if you want, I can tell you more later if you mm. wise, uh, skip it. And uh, the O is also the zero, uh, at least is uh, very close to the zero, which is uh, the DNA of the binary code. So the DNA of technology and the internet. So DNA of uh, humans and DNA of machine. Wow. And, and this, um, let's say, philosophy of human and machine has been uh, my philosophy over the last 20 years because I could go completely towards machine in certain areas, logistics, uh, the website, the apps, uh, or I could be, let's say, more luxury and uh, emotional and quality and warm. So I tried to come up with the warm technology. So the combination of the two, because luxury uh, needed also to be very emotional. And so I couldn't have a, a wide catalog uh, or go the Amazon way. Yeah, I had to cool. come up with something different. And uh, across the, the, the last 20 years, uh, all the strategies in terms of uh, AI, 
big data and so on. And they always try to also have a, a, a human component. Yeah. For example, we have stylists, amazing stylists, talented stylists, but we have also a machine that is learning style. But this machine doesn't replace the stylist, but gives the stylist a very powerful tool to understand their customers. Of course. So this is a combination of human machine rather than a machine replacing a human. And, and these are, this is an example, but we have so many, I mean, basically all my strategies that have been inspired by this combination. Amazing. Well, that's a good name then. Thank you. <laughs> really, really inhabits it. So let's talk about the, the company now then. It's been, as you say, almost exactly 21 years since you set it up. What's been, if you had to pick one really dramatic change, what's been the single biggest change you think in the world of, of luxury, the world of fashion since you got started? Uh, to tell you the truth, I think every year has been different. So um, I didn't, I never got the time to, to, to annoy myself uh, and or to get bored. Um, because every year with a company that is starting from zero euro or pound to over two billion, basically every year it changes completely the skin, mm. the organization and the evolution and the innovation. So for example, I, I always been obsessed by being the first. So I, I in the sense that um, in terms of innovation, I never ever copied anybody. So yeah. I came up with ideas and then I was uh, hoping that they were good ideas. <laughs> and um, so I, in uh, as just an example, in 2005, uh, as an innovation within the, inno the innovation, I came up with the idea of the monobrand stores. So given that we had all the infrastructure of technology and logistics across the globe, why not renting it together with our know-how to the brands that they wanted to have their own store? So Armani.com, powered by Juxnetaporte, or Valentino.com, powered by Juxnetaporte. So this was a, a kind of a disruption in the fashion industry because nobody had any, let's say, professional e-commerce website at the time. And in fact, in a few years, we went from zero monobrand to 40 monobrand. And it was a huge success. Or in 2006, actually, this I, I forgot to tell my friend Johnny Ive the other night, but in 2006, I put together a task force around mobile commerce. In wow. 2006, the first iPhone was launched in 2007. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> this, this is called luck, or you can say maybe vision, a little bit of luck and a little bit of vision. But uh, now, more than 50% of our revenues are coming from mobile. And uh, if I hadn't started so early, probably wouldn't be in the same position, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So basically, it's, it's been a long journey, but every time with uh, new things, uh, new adventures, and, uh, and also like meeting new cultures, uh, uh, new people, opening China, opening Japan, opening America, it's been, I mean, it's been a fantastic journey. And that's why I've got uh, so much um, passion for this business. And on the other hand, what do you like least about it? What do you think it, where do you think it hasn't changed enough? What are the areas that you think are cliched or overdone or perhaps where luxury fashion is missing the point completely? Do you think there are any real areas where 
it could grow? What uh, what I'm doing now as uh, let's say as uh, also my future, I've been appointed as a chair or or champion um, of uh, Israel Highness Sustainable Markets Initiative Task Force on Fashion. So basically, in other in simple words, what uh, I've done, I put together a roundtable of the most uh, powerful people in fashion. Mm. both brands and retailers and manufacturers around the world, so from America to Middle East, uh, Europe, and so on. And as part of the Sustainable Markets Initiative, which is uh, this uh, amazing and ambitious initiative that uh, Israel Highness, uh, the Prince of Wales, have launched uh, uh, one year ago with Macron uh, in in Davos, uh, together with this manifesto called Terra Carta. I'm trying to push an acceleration in the fashion industry towards sustainability. Mm. Because uh, it's something that, uh, obviously, it's it's something that you have been uh, hearing recently from many brands, uh, this uh, sustainable collection, this uh, sustainable thing, this sustainable, there's there's also some greenwashing, let's put it this way. Yeah. Uh, But I have to say that now the brands are very serious about this and um, and through let's say a coordinated effort a strong teamwork because uh, alone you can do yes you can do something alone but together you can do much more yeah and that's uh, let's say the objective of the task force that i have the honor to chair because uh, i'm connecting many brands together and usually they're not working together these brands believe me and also, like uh, we are connected also with the other task forces of the Sustainable Markets Initiative, for example, the forest one, uh, because now you can make natural fibers out of wood, out of yeah. forests. And so this approach, which is a very horizontal and vertical, and bringing people together towards the same objectives and working together for sustainability is really something that makes me not only passionate, but also very, very satisfied of uh, the, the the work that we're doing. In the last year, obviously, everything has has slowed down, but fashion, more than most industries, seems to be one that's driven by kind of relentless pace. Obviously, the seasonality aspect, but also just all the stuff around it, the fact that there are shows all year round or, you know, big events that even a year and a half ago we used to think it was completely normal to fly f- to Tokyo, to Geneva and be on a plane constantly. And I think fashion was victim to that on a human level as well. People were kind of almost burning out, weren't they? Do you think this has been a great reset? And and are you concerned that maybe when things do return to normal, we'll forget the the beauty of a slightly slower pace of life? No, I don't think we will forget. I don't think we will go back. I think I hope not. I I think people want the future. They don't want the past. Mm. I'm 100% sure about that. And um, and including the fashion industry, um, I mean, uh, as you mentioned before COVID, there was a kind of uh, what I call the global uh, fashion warming rather than global warming, because it's true. I mean, there, it was maybe too much actually. Without maybe, it was too much. Too many collections, too many events, too much hype. Do you think? Yeah, all these influencers and so on. I mean. Uh, crazy. Um, I remember also this um, 
kind of a payoff or slogan, I don't know how you say it in English, but uh, see now by now. Yeah. So that was basically the quintessential example of speed. But, uh, but fashion is not necessarily about speed, maybe speed of service, but not speed of creativity, speed mm. of coming up with new collections, new, newness, 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 newness all the time. I think luxury and fashion is about longevity and durability, which is also the, the equal, equal to sustainability, because uh, the most important thing for sustainability is the longevity of the product. Yeah. Everything starts from there. So if the product, you can wear it for two years, 20 years, is definitely more sustainable than something that uh, you buy just for an event uh, of fast fashion, uh, and, or maybe you just buy it and you never wear it because uh, imagine 40% of the products from fast fashion are never, are, are never used, which is, yeah. which is incredible. So um, I think that the new slogan should be buy now and wear forever, because I think that that's the way forward. And I think that the fashion industry is absolutely understanding that and um, is a, um, making all the necessary changes to, to be more sustainable in this way. So you mentioned all the kind of deals you've made in your past over the years, and obviously the big one in 2015 was the merger with Netta Porter. How did that come about? And I mean, how tricky was that? Was it a big stress in your life? Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. It was, I mean, it doesn't happen every day that an Italian merge uh, with the British yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, but I was uh, so convinced also that time that um, for the longevity again and the dur durability of the companies so each one of them as a standalone company mm. would have been much more fragile than together so I'm a big believer of that yeah and, um, and therefore, I, I tried hard to do this merger. And actually, I tried three times. So I was lucky at the third time over three or four years. So I, I, I didn't give up. And um, because for the people, for their families, for their jobs, uh, I think it's, it's very important that you're part of a solid group that has a long, long future in front, in front of you. And the rationale, the business rationale was that uh, both Hughes and Netaporte, they were two leaders in fashion and luxury in a different way, mm. but completely complementary to one each other, both in terms of geographies, in terms of business models and so on. So rather than reinventing the wheels, each one of us and uh, throwing money investments uh, uh, in order to, to, let's say, to follow each other, I think it was much, much better to put together the two companies and then make these investments for the future of the group. And that's, that's what it is. That's what I, that, that, that was the main reason behind the, the merger. Were there any moments when it was in trouble, when it looked like the merger might fall apart? Oh, every, every, every day, every day before the signing. So really? <laughs> Yeah. And how, how do you get through that? I mean, how do you, are you a good sleeper? Are you pretty calm in a crisis? Uh, yeah, I try to keep 
calm, so I'm calm, I would say, so I, I could sleep, but um, maybe my stomach inside, inside of me, I, I was uh, definitely nervous, but I didn't show this, this to anybody, just uh, to myself, yeah. <laughs> just to myself, but definitely, I mean, all these, all, all the deals yeah. are, let's say, with a lot of adrenaline, but that's also why we like them. Yeah. That's why we like to do deals. No? So the IPO, for example, the IPO of Ux in 2008, it was um, basically after the Lehman crack. Mm. And uh, no one was going public because uh, at that time, the capital markets, they were completely down. So I decided to go public during the time against all the odds. And yeah. so I remember that probably two or three days before the day the actual day of going public. There was another big turmoil in Dubai, something about oil or whatever, or real estate, I don't remember, but there was like, wow. And I have seen all the bankers uh, uh, very nervous that maybe, you know, because if something big uh, like this happens, yeah. then you cannot go public and maybe you need to postpone or maybe you never go public again. But I think that that's the beauty of it. Right. <laughs> Well, so what's the next big deal then? What um, have we, can we get a scoop? You got something on on the horizon? No, I mean uh, the, the next big deal uh, is uh, that um, uh, as part uh, of my uh, journey and uh, agreement with my shareholders, I've started to look for a successor after twenty years. Uh, last January twenty twenty, and then uh, there was COVID. So I had to basically put on hold the search because obviously during COVID, uh, I had to be the captain of the boat. I, you cannot leave the boat during yeah. time. So the, the search for the successor was a little bit delayed, but then we started again uh, in the autumn. And um, at the end of last year, we appointed as a new CEO, this guy called Geoffroy, uh, that is a veteran of Richmond, uh, following all the online distributors. And currently, I'm the chairman uh, until the transition is done. Uh, in, in the same time, as I said, uh, I'm uh, helping and I'm honored to be appointed uh, by Israel Highness uh, to the Sustainable Markets Initiative. I, I, I'm doing also, I'm a board member of George Armani as a, the only non-family member in order to kind of his own personal consigliere. Wow. Uh, more or less my, my role. And last but not least, in September, I'm going to have my own uh, course at Bocconi University. So I'll become a professor. Wow. Uh, two days a week, two mornings a week. Uh, and the, the name of the course that I've invented is uh, Creating a Startup in the Digital and Sustainable Economy. Wow. And uh, I thought that uh, I mean, it will last for three months from September to December. And I thought it was uh, the most concrete way that I could do myself to help uh, young people to be more entrepreneurial. Because in Italy, we lack entrepreneurs now. So there's no motivation and probably there's no confidence in, because of the bureaucracy, because of uh, politics. Uh, but now I think uh, times uh, are changing. So we have a new government uh, and uh, hopefully with the funds from Europe, uh, I think there will be a, a change for Italy. I'm sure that actually there will be 
Italy will change for the good, for the better. And so I had to do something as well because I, uh, you know, I cannot uh, just uh, enjoy the life and be the chairman. And uh, and then so I, I, I decided that the best way to do to, to help young people was uh, to, be, to, to, to do this course. Professor Marchetti, that's a that's got a ring to it. <laughs> Sounds good. Professore, it would be, wouldn't it? <laughs> so I want to talk briefly about the, the future because you seem to have a knack, as you say. A bit of luck, a bit of vision, but you seem to be able to to sniff out the future before other people. At first, we were told that no one would buy luxury online. Then we were told they'd never buy it on a phone. Now you do half of your your business on a phone. So, what's the next buying behavior? Do you think where are people going to be buying luxury next? I I think that the phones are. I don't think that in five years we will have phones. I okay. think. Wow. <laughs> I, th- I think that uh, we will have um, something else, which I, I don't know yet uh, what. Uh, something part of us, like in, inside us, kind of biotech? Uh, I mean, I, I, I don't want to, to think uh, like the, 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 the microchips, uh, like the Swedish are, are putting the bodies uh, of the employees. Uh, I think this is a bit uh, extreme. And uh, I think between human and machine, uh, this goes too much towards machine. Yeah. <laughs> so I wouldn't go there. But I believe that still the, the, the phone is, a, a, is a, a, an instrument that uh, will change a lot and uh, will become more part of our lives in a different way rather than being separate. Because in the end, we live with this phone almost 24 hours, except when we sleep. Also, also when we sleep, sometimes we look at the phone in terms of the time or, or if there is anything urgent, which is the best way not to sleep. Yeah. Um, so I think that um, there will be more inventions around the phone. And another, another thing that probably is a bit rudimental and primitive is still the planes. So I think planes... In the end, uh, like they are almost the same since 50 years, mm. not, not so much change in the, indu- in the industry. So I think also we will live uh, a completely different way of traveling when we will start to travel again. And, um, and I'm sure that some engineers or some inventors will come up with the fantastic planes uh, or, or probably they've already come up with something like this uh, mm. that probably will be also more, more sustainable. Uh, in terms of um, yeah and uh, CO2 absolutely Richard Branson's been promising to create that plane that leaves the atmosphere and comes back in that'd be good you can get to Australia in two hours or something <laughs> that'd be fun uh, that would be good that would be good <laughs> so then what about AI then what role do you see AI playing in in fashion particularly I suppose in in design will we ever have a creative director at Chanel, for example, who is a computer? Is that possible? Oh, yes. I, I, I keep saying that um, the next Coco Chanel is born and uh, she's a programmer. And I do believe that. Wow. Um, and uh, I tried also to show by example this, uh, this statement, which is pretty strong in the fashion industry, um, with the, this project that uh, I, I, I came up with uh, together with his Royal Highness. Uh, it was uh, the first time that uh, we met and uh, he asked me to come up with a project uh, bridging uh, UK with Italy. 
So I went back home and I start thinking, what can I, what can I do? I mean, I mean, it's not, uh, it's not easy to, to come up with something to do yeah. together with the Prince of Wales. And so I came up with the, this project called Modern Artisan um, that has been a huge global success. And we have just launched uh, one week ago, the second edition. So it will continue forever. As also as part of my legacy to Yuxnata Porteo, which I'm very proud of. And, um, and the concept is um, to merge creativity with data and to give new tools to one of the oldest jobs of the world, which is the one of the artisan. So artisans using AI, data, digital, in order to come up with a collection that is more sustainable because it creates less waste and, and, and that's exactly what it is, because uh, two groups of people from Italy, from UK, young artisans, uh, working together on a sustainable collection, luxury collection, that um, has been sold on Yux and on Neta Porte at the same time. We sold out uh, almost, I don't know, 50 or 60% of the collection in the first two weeks. So modern artisan collections sold out better than Prada and Gucci, wow. <laughs> which is, which is Crazy if you think that uh, has been done by young students and by yeah. young artisans because uh, they leverage a lot during their creative process uh, data that uh, they were coming from five years of history at Uxanta Porte. And you know, like we have uh, almost five million customers, active customers. We have around uh, no more than one billion visits per year. So if you can. Uh, analyze this data. It's a very powerful tool that you can use and continue to be creative, continue to use your taste and your creativity, but at least you have this information. Mm. So using this information and together with your own creativity proved to be the way forward, and probably a blueprint for the fashion industry in order to create less leftovers in the end, because, uh, because in this way, you can basically predict the long-term preferences of the customers and therefore create less waste. So if you were young and you were 21, starting out all over again, no Professore Marchetti yet, what would you go into? Would you go into e-commerce or would you be looking at something completely different? No, I think it's a, it's a great opportunity. And that's why also I'm doing this course for, let's say people that they want to have an entrepreneurial, an entrepreneurial career. Mm to look at the intersection between innovation and sustainability. Because I think uh, not only in fashion, I'm talking in general, yeah. innovation and sustainability together. Because I'm 100% sure that the technology can, can definitely help the planet and can help us to change the way we've been doing in the last 20 or 30 years. And um, because we need to change and technology is about change in the end, you know, how to do the things in a different way. And so innovation, the interception between innovation and sustainability, I think um, I can feel that there are many opportunities for young people to become entrepreneurs, successful entrepreneurs with successful companies. Federico, thank you so, so much for joining us. It's my been pleasure. fascinating. My pleasure. It was a fun conversation. Thank you so Absolutely. much. Absolutely. I hope we'll speak to you again soon. Bye, Joe. Bye-bye. Thanks.
Well, if you enjoyed that episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast, you'll almost certainly love the Gentleman's Journal magazine, the world's finest dispatch from the front line of luxury, entrepreneurship and style. In fact, lucky podcast listeners like you now get 20% off our annual subscription. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com to find out more.